0: All right, welcome to the second week of the Equip Institute. Uh, Before we get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We are so grateful for the opportunity that we have to be here on Wednesday nights and to uh, learn more uh, about tonight how to interpret the Bible and especially uh, some interesting topics about uh, the canonization of Scripture and, and how we got our Bible. and uh, Lord, we just look forward to learning about your Word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired that Word uh, would be with us today as we discuss these matters, and we commit our time to you. Pray that it would be time well spent for the sake of the kingdom work that you're doing in and through each of us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so hopefully you have your hand out, in front of you. If you were here last week, it's going to be very similar. Uh, This week, I've got my notes. You've got some of my notes, and you have the chance to take some extra notes if you would like to. But let me begin just by way of introduction, and uh, we're going to begin with our mission statement every single week, uh, reinforcing by repetition why we're we're here. Uh, The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. This, week, uh, this fall, we're gonna spend 12 weeks discussing the Christian story. This is the second week of three weeks that we're especially gonna drill down on the idea of basic biblical interpretation. It's not gonna be the only thing we talk about this fall. We're gonna talk about uh, a big picture overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're gonna talk about how the Testaments relate to each other. We're gonna talk a little bit about biblical theology. But before we do that, we're gonna talk about biblical interpretation. So if you were with us last week, you may remember that we talked about just the idea of biblical interpretation, what that is. We also talked about the word hermeneutics, uh, the, the science of studying the Bible. And we discussed uh, a key foundational belief that is necessary, foundational for faithful interpretation that the fact that the Bible is inspired and it's authoritative. So this week we're gonna dig a little bit deeper into interpretation. We're gonna discuss the canon of scripture. Why these books? We're gonna talk about some general interpretive principles and we're gonna talk about some of the literary genres that we find in the Bible and some tips for how to interpret some of those genres. I'll just go ahead and give you a preview for next week. We'll talk about meaning and interpretation, what's the difference between what Scripture means, sorry, meaning and application, the difference between what the Bible means and how we apply it, and we'll also do a, uh, a refresher for many or an introduction for others Uh, to the E3 method that we use kind of foundationally to interpret the Bible in our small groups. Many of us do it in our devotional life as well. Uh, So we'll do a little bit more with that next week. Any questions before we get started? So I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered where the Bible came from? Or have you ever wondered why... Our Roman Catholic friends have books in their Bible that we don't have. Or maybe you've heard things like Martin Luther wasn't sure that James should be in Scripture. Or maybe you just know somebody who might even love the Lord who just says, man, the book of Daniel is weird. Why is that in there? Well, people have been wondering about this for a long time. So tonight, we're going to talk a little bit right here at the beginning about how we got these books, these 66 books uh, that are part of scripture. So I want to begin by talking about the Old Testament canon uh, because here's the pretty cool thing. That was basically settled by the time we had the New Testament. So that's going to be our background in some ways. Long before the New Testament books were written or canonized, the books that we now call the Old Testament were considered the inspired scriptures of the earliest Christians. Uh, In fact, there's a great book written by Philip Yancey about 25 years ago about the Old Testament. It's called The Bible Jesus Read because the Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus read. Different factions of Jews, Sadducees, Pharisees, some other lesser known groups, they debated which sections of what we now call the Old Testament were scripture But the New Testament writers and the earliest second century Christians into the 100s, right after the time of the Bible, they all affirmed that everything we call the Old Testament was inspired. So some of you may know the Sadducees uh, weren't sure about anything after the first five books of the Bible and the Pharisees, it was very similar. That's interesting But what you need to know is that everybody who wrote the New Testament believed that everything we call the Old Testament was inspired. Does that make sense? So because they believe it was inspired, the early church accepted the Old Testament as inspired. Many biblical authors in the first century were aware that there were both Hebrew and Greek versions of the Old Testament that were floating around. But by about A.D. 100 couple of generations after the life of Christ, nearly all Christians actually were using the Greek version of the Bible, not the Hebrew version of the Bible because their native language in most cases was Greek. So that's why they were reading in Greek, just like all of us, I think, or at least most of us, our native language is English, we prefer the English Bible. Anybody remember what that Greek version of the Old Testament was called? The Septuagint. Uh, So that was the Bible that was primarily being used by the earliest church. The earliest Christians argued that the Old Testament was a book about Jesus. In fact, they said, when you read the Old Testament the right way, it always points you to Jesus. They argued that Jesus himself taught this in two key passages. We're not going to read them, but I'm going to reference them. Uh, One is in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27 on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus began to teach those disciples on the road to Emmaus about himself from the Old Testament. We also see this in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40 when Jesus has some back and forth with the Pharisees, and he explains that uh, Moses and the prophets were speaking of him. That all of Moses and the prophets were speaking of him. So the early church felt like they were standing on pretty good ground. They would say that uh, the Old Testament is not a uh, Jewish story full stop they would say it's Jewish scriptures pointing forward to the Messiah who is a Jew but is the Savior of all men. And that was the approach that they took. Christians argued that the first century Jews who lived during Jesus's life and right after, that they misinterpreted their own scriptures. Because if they had been reading the scriptures correctly, they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah. They would have embraced him. As the Messiah. Now, the books of the Apocrypha, many of you are familiar with the Apocrypha, right? Those extra books you find in Roman Catholic versions of the Old Testament. The books of the Apocrypha were sometimes quoted by early Christian leaders, but two points are important here they were not quoted by the New Testament writers. And even the early Christian leaders that quoted from the Apocrypha did not say that it was scripture or treat it like it was the Old Testament scripture. You might think about it this way. How many of you have ever said, how many of you believe that the Bible alone is the Bible, but you would also say something like, I really like that book by Max Locato, or I really like that book by Beth Moore or John Piper or whoever it might be. And, and it's a powerful book that speaks to you and you think the Lord led that person to write that book, but you know it's not scripture. That's very similar to how the early Christian leaders interacted with the Apocrypha. They didn't think it was an evil book, thought there was helpful stuff in those Apocryphal books, they just didn't think it was inspired in the same way that Isaiah and in the same way that Genesis and in the same way that 1 and 2 Samuel was inspired. So they didn't consider the Apocrypha to be part of Scripture. By the way, the Apocrypha wasn't considered to be part of Scripture even by the Roman Catholic Church until the time of the Reformation. It was in response to the Protestants that the Catholic Church said the Apocrypha is inspired the same way that the Old Testament is inspired. So that actually comes along much later in church history. The real action is not with the Old Testament because again, all those early Christian believers were reading it, they believed it was Scripture the real action was with all these newfangled books that were coming along. So the early church affirmed the divine inspiration and authority of the Old Testament, but what about the letters and the gospels and the historical books and the prophetic books that were written after the resurrection of Christ? Some of those also seem to be divinely inspired. Now, there were some diverse opinions concerning which of these other books besides the Old Testament should be considered scripture. But very early on, by the end of the first century, there was already significant consensus. Almost all Christians, almost everywhere who left a record for us agreed that the four New Testament gospels and only those gospels were scripture, even though there were other gospels. Only those four were inspired. Almost every Christian, almost everywhere that left a record, believed that Paul's writings were inspired. There wasn't much debate about that, but there were some professing Christians who were asking questions about other gospels, or they were asking questions about other letters written by other people, and they were asking questions about Letters not written by Paul that are considered scripture, things like James, first, second, and third John, first and second Peter. So what causes them to say that scripture, that's good, but that's not scripture, and that's bad? Because they're putting him into those different buckets. Well, here's what happened. There was a man named Marcion. Have any of you ever heard of Marcion before? So Marcion was a theologian who disliked the Jews. He was anti-Semitic. And he wanted to distance Christianity from its Jewish roots. He wanted it to be a Gentile religion and not something that was rooted in Judaism. So Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament is not the same deity as the God of the New Testament. And I'm going to make you squirm a little bit because he said some things that we even hear sometimes in Sunday school classes or in bad hymns or from television preachers. He said things like the Old Testament God is all about justice and wrath, but the New Testament God is all about mercy and love. Do you ever hear something like that? Have you ever heard people say things like that? Or he would say the Old Testament God loved the Jewish people, but the New Testament God loves everybody. Have you ever heard people say things like that? And we still hear these ideas from time to time. Now, what's the problem with that belief? I mean, besides it's wrong. What's? I mean, seriously, what's the... It's not consistent with the New Testament. Testament. What do you mean by that? just to the Old Testament. They're also within the New Testament. So. That's exactly right. The New Testament talks a lot about God's justice and a lot about God's... Have you read the book of Revelation? <laughs> right? And the Old Testament talks a lot about God's love and God's mercy and not just towards Jewish people, but towards all people. It says that Jews are to be a light to the nations. God loves everybody across all of these books. Now, to defend his anti-Jewish version of Christianity, Marcion assembled what he called a canon, a rule, if you will, a standard of Scripture. And he excluded the entire Old Testament and every New Testament book except 10 of Paul's letters, and an edited version of Luke's gospel. Now, how many of you have ever heard the story about how Thomas Jefferson published a version of the Bible where he cut out all the miracles? You familiar with that, the Jefferson Bible? This is the Marcion Bible. He cuts out all the Jewish stuff and says, this is your scripture. And it's a story about the God who loves everybody who's not a Jew and has a plan for their lives. That's what he does. And so, what this does is it it leads to there being a Marcionite church that, in some places, competes with mainstream Orthodox churches, especially in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So, it's really Marcion's uh, canon, his heretical canon that forces Orthodox Christians to settle once and for all which books are inspired and which ones aren't. And let me just go ahead and say this. Later next year, if you're still with us, when we talk about church history, this will be a recurring theme. Heresy is bad, but in God's providence, he uses heresy to help us clarify right doctrine. Does that make sense? When someone says something bad, it forces us to be clear about what's right. And that's what's happening with the canon of Scripture. So the church has to be clear on this. So various other collections or canons of Scripture start circulating in different regions, but by about 200, there was general consensus on which books should be considered part of the New Testament. There were some books that were debated before they finally made the cut. I'm gonna give you two examples. Hebrews barely made the cut because they weren't sure who wrote it. And Revelation barely made the cut because it's weird. (laughs) So those were two that uh, it took them a little bit longer to settle on Hebrews and Revelation. And there were some books that everybody loved but they ultimately said, that's probably not scripture. One was called the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles. You may have heard of that. Another one was called the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, these are good books and they enjoyed reading them, but they just, they didn't seem to meet the same standard as the four gospels and the writings of Paul and first and second Peter, and even revelation and Hebrews. So, it gets more and more refined. By the time we get to about 200, they're almost all there, almost everywhere. So where does our canon come from? The earliest published list was uh, 367. Athanasius of Alexandria, one of the great leaders in the early church, uh, circulated our list of 66 books and he said, this is it, and I'm not the only person to believe it. All these other people believe it too. Well, we've lost where they've said it, but we still have where he said it. And, uh, and the church rallied around that. So again, what I don't want you to think is that they didn't know what was in the Bible until 367. That's not the picture we're painting. There was widespread consensus from the beginning, and there was a little bit of debate, but by the time we get to 367, everybody's on the same page. And we have been on the same page ever since then, other than Roman Catholics adding the Apocrypha during the time of Reformation. So you may be wondering, how did they decide those books? Well, there wasn't any formal process. They didn't bring a group together to take a vote. They didn't have a rubric that they used or anything like that. Uh, But there were several criteria that just organically, seem to work together to help them process this. There's typically three things that are mentioned as as criteria. So one was apostolicity. I know that that's a funny word that we don't use every day, but this is what apostolicity means. Only those books that were written by apostles or individuals closely associated with apostles should be considered authentic scripture. So that's it. I mean, it, it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all apostles are people connected to apostles. Peter, James, Paul, people who were apostles or were connected with apostles. So that becomes kind of criteria one, but it's a little less important than criteria two, which is Catholicity. Now don't get scared. We don't mean Roman Catholicity. The word Catholic just means whole or universal. So by Catholicity, what they meant was only books that were widely accepted by most mainstream Christians were authentic Scripture. That's what we mean by that. Were there books way over here in that region that they loved and they thought were Scripture but nobody else did? Yes, there were. And were there some churches where over there in that community, they're not real sure about 2 Peter and Jude But everybody else says, sure. But when it was just this group or this group, that didn't settle it. They were looking for consensus, widespread agreement that this is scripture. So that was their second criteria. Is it in some way connected to an apostle, either directly or indirectly? Is it accepted by most Christians in most places? But then the third criteria is the trump card the one ring to rule them all. It it answers the questions, and that's orthodoxy. Only those books that accurately represented the consensus of mainstream Christians were authentic scripture. They knew what they believed because the Old Testament taught what they believed. And they were circulating uh, records of their beliefs, things like what we would now call the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The church knew what they believed, And so they were saying, which of these debatable books sound like what we believe? And even more important, they sound consistent with what we call the Old Testament and with the stuff that we know is scripture, the gospels and the writings of Paul and things like that. This is how Hebrews gets in. They still aren't sure who wrote Hebrews. It doesn't pass the apostolicity test. It could have been an apostle, but most people don't think so. But is there a book in the New Testament that sounds more like the Old Testament than Hebrews? I mean, maybe one or two, but Hebrews is clearly consistent with what the Old Testament teaches. And so at the end of the day, they say, well, you know, we're we're not 100% sure who wrote it, but it sounds like Moses and David and Isaiah and Paul and the gospel writers, Revelation, Again, they wrestled with some of the imagery just like we did, but Revelation quotes more of the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. They said this is clearly consistent, so even if some of it is hard to understand, it's in the same story. We recognize the story of the one God who created all things, who is redeeming a people for Himself and ultimately the entire created order. This is part of that story. So who wrote it mattered, but it wasn't quite as important as who accepted it in terms of how widespread it was, which wasn't quite as important as is this the same story? And when it was the same story, they said that's scripture. And when it sounded kind of like the story, but it wasn't exactly the same, or there were elements that were inconsistent with the story, they either said, good book, but not scripture, or bad book, false gospel, false epistle. Stay away from that. Any questions? I know that's quick. It's kind of 30,000 foot view. Any questions? And, and, and this is not your opportunity to try to get Revelation out. Okay, <laughs> Revelation's in. But any questions about the canon? Yeah. So, we say that... that- <laughs> <laughs> region, different parts of region. they didn't have email, they didn't have text, who? I understand. But you know what I'm so, so how, how did this group of people do this, and come to an agreement, So who's the, here's the question, who's the they that's doing the approving and how are they communicating with each other and how do they know who they are? So as a general rule, they fall into two categories. They are either pastoral leaders who have different names in different places. Sometimes they're called pastor. Sometimes they're called elder. Sometimes they're called bishop. In one writing, not the Bible, they're even called the president because they preside over the Lord's table. But the type of folks that we would today call pastors, that's the they. And they are in, oh, I'm sorry, in the second group of people, many of them are also pastors, are the theologians, the people who are writing about all the stuff and wrestling with the questions. And they don't always know each other personally, but they are in correspondence with each other. And whenever they're nearby, sometimes they get together in councils and groups and they say, What do we do with Revelation? Sounds like scripture to me. What do we do with Shepherd of Hermas? It's a good book, but it's not the same as these other books. So it's an organic process, but we do know who the they are and how they were communicating, and we know that they were getting together when they could or they were writing back and forth. And beyond that, it's really just kind of consensus that develops this is where the faith comes in that we're trusting the Holy Spirit was working through. They were fallible people just like us. But from the earliest days we're discussing, nearly all Christians in nearly every place was saying, we think the Holy Spirit's working through our leaders. We think He's working through trustworthy theologians to help us navigate these questions. The us as everybody. To help us navigate these questions, so we do know who many of the they were, and uh, and they were in contact. They didn't have email for sure, but uh, I mean, some of you have been to Europe, right? Some of you have been to Western Asia, guys. It's not that big. It's not that big. You can fit it in Texas, maybe not quite Texas, but in all seriousness, it, it's it's not that big. And so we're not talking about you know one of them is in Greenville and another one's in Portland and how are they gonna connect with each other? It's more like one of them is in Greenville and one of them is in Knoxville and how are they gonna connect with each other? Now I'm not saying it's easy to get to Knoxville when you don't have a car, but you can probably get there if you can commit the time to doing it, right? So they're, they're closer than we realize. They're closer than we realize. I think it was one other question. Start copying or, or making copies of some of the original letters and documents. So the question is, uh, when did they start copying the original versions of what we would call the New Testament, and maybe how much of that was in circulation? And, and, and what are some of the oldest pieces that are? Started? What are some of the oldest pieces that are still available? Okay, that part's important. So. The honest answer is we don't know how late they still had access to the originals. Does that make sense? And we know even during the time of the New Testament, some of the originals were being copied. Paul, in a couple of occasions, talks about passing around the letters to other churches. So they're already making copies. Luke refers to the sources that he's using to compile his gospel and acts, which would have probably included some written traditions, maybe even another gospel or parts of another gospel and oral tradition. So there's all kinds of stuff that's out there that they have access to. Uh, We don't know. We just know that books were being circulated. There were copies. The the they, the, the writers, talk about that. So we just know these folks over here, these folks over here, and these folks over here all have the Gospel of Mark. And that's from the early 100s, they have that. In terms of the earliest manuscripts that we have access to now, uh, most of them would date to around the 300s. So we know they were copying, we know that they continued. There are some fragments that date to the second century. I'm not aware of any fragments that date to the first century. Kent, are you aware of any fragments? I've not heard that, that there are fragments in the first century. But we get within 100 years of the time of Christ, we have fragments. And, And keep in mind, I've told you, they know who they are, and some of them are writing. So here's how we know that they're trustworthy very early on. When they are quoting, they're all quoting the same stuff. So they've got different copies in different places on far opposite sides of the empire and they're quoting word for word the same Greek, or for that matter, the same Hebrew. So for that reason, we believe those manuscripts are trustworthy. Now you may be sitting here and saying, yeah, Nathan, but how do we know? Because we don't have the original. So I just told you that the earliest fragments are about 100 years later, the earliest full manuscripts are about 150 years later. That seems like a big long time, doesn't it? That is by far the shortest distance between original writings and available manuscripts of any writings in the ancient world. Most of the writings in the ancient world that we have access to are several hundred years later. And we're just trusting that's what Homer really said or that that's what Socrates really said. There's a much shorter distance between the earliest records we have of what we now call the New Testament and when those things were written. So can we be absolutely 100% scientific certain that they're accurate? The honest answer is no. But do we have any good reason besides skepticism to say that they're not accurate? Nope, we don't. We don't. We can be reasonably certain that they're accurate and remember what Scripture teaches about itself. We can be reasonably certain even before we appeal to the Holy Spirit just because that distance is so short and there's so many copies than quotes that are being floated around out there. So when you couple that with everything scripture says about how the Holy Spirit's inspiring scripture, this is why we say God was at work in all that. There's a reason that gap is so small. There's a reason there are so many copies. There's a reason that Joe's over here and Mike's over there and Billy's over there and they're all quoting the Gospel of Luke and it's word for word the same. That's the Spirit working through his people to preserve his word. All right, let's talk about some general interpretive principles. Last week I recommended the book 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, so I want to give credit where credit's due. About half of these principles are coming from that book, but some of them are not coming directly from the book. Uh, So here are some general recommendations. this will come out a little bit next week as well. Number one, read the Bible from a posture of faith. Folks, read the Bible like a Christian. That's okay. I know some of you took a Bible class at a state university and they said we should read the Bible like we read every other writing and we should you know, critically assess it and whatever. We're Christians. Read the Bible from a posture of faith. So let me just go ahead and say that. We, we wanna come to the Bible as people who love the Lord and are saying, Lord, speak to me through this word. Number two, read the Bible prayerfully and meditatively. It ought to be the case that whenever we're reading the scripture, maybe not literally, but figuratively speaking, we're reading the Bible with callous knees because we are prayerfully reading the scripture and we're meditating on it. We're chewing on it. We're wrestling with it. We really want to understand what it means and apply what it means to our lives for his glory and our good and the health of this body. Number three, read the Bible as an inspired book that speaks authoritatively. That's really just reviewing what we said last week about the doctrine of Scripture, but this is what the Bible says it is, and if we're coming at it with a posture of faith, we need to take it at its word. It's God's written words through men, and it's authoritative in our life. Number four, we talked about this at the beginning tonight. Read the Bible as a book that points to Jesus. Now, what I don't mean is that every verse in every book in the Bible is about Jesus. But what I do mean is that the Bible is about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I just love Charles Spurgeon. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Uh, If you don't remember who he is, he's famous 19th century Victorian Baptist preacher in London, pastored the largest church in the world at that time, 6,000 people, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And Spurgeon was talking about this one day. And he said no matter where you are in England, what village you're in, there's a high road, what we would call a main street, and all the high roads connect to each other and ultimately lead you to London. And in the same way, we should understand that every section of scripture has a high road, and all those high roads are connected to each other, and the high roads always lead to Jesus. So it's not every verse or every word, but every part of the scripture is telling the same story. And it's a story about Jesus and all that he's done in his perfect life, sacrificial death and victorious resurrection to save us and ultimately redeem this created order. That's the story of scripture. We should read the Bible number five in Christian community, especially our church. I'm not saying we shouldn't read the Bible as families, that's a really important community. I'm not saying uh, that we shouldn't read the Bible with a, a workplace Bible study, that's awesome. Bible study fellowship, other sorts of, all that's great. But ground zero for Christian maturity is the local church. The church will outlast every other type of ministry, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and so it is primarily with our church that we should read the Bible together. You know what we call that? Inoculation against heresy. Because anytime somebody goes off and says, I've discovered something nobody else has heard before, things start getting weird. We sharpen each other, we hold each other accountable, we refine each other, we keep each other in check, we spur each other on to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Read the Bible in community. Number six, let Scripture interpret Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is not your favorite theologian or your favorite Bible commentator or the most eloquent preacher you've ever sat under, though God uses all of those things. The best interpreter of Scripture is the rest of Scripture. And we read all of it in light of all of it. More on that in a bit. Pay attention to the author's context, but never at the expense of the unity of Scripture. What I mean by that is we wanna understand as much as we can about when that person wrote that book and what was going on, but we also need to recognize it's still part of this one story. Does that make sense? So we don't wanna overdo, well, what's going on in Paul's life whenever he's writing? We need to pay attention to biblical genres. We're gonna do that in just a minute, but also not at the expense of scripture. We don't wanna act like the story of Proverbs is different than the story of the rest of the Bible, or the story of the epistles is different than the story of the rest of the Bible. We should pay attention to historical context, but never at the expense of the text in front of you. Now, I'm gonna give a real life example with this, because I've heard this done many, many times, and I bet you have too. I love history. I love church history. I have a PhD in church history. History is awesome. But sometimes I've heard some preachers or teachers talk so much about what was going on at the time the text was written that they spend all their time doing that and not necessarily telling you what the text says. Or they spend so much time on an illustration that might come from the historical context that, uh, that it's just more information than you need. How many of you have ever heard a pastor or teacher spend five minutes or 10 minutes of a sermon talking about how in Laodicea, there was pipes with cold water and pipes of hot water and they ran together and it created lukewarm water and the water was stagnant and it spelled bad and people were sick all the time and vomiting and we need to know that whenever we read about the church of Laodicea that was lukewarm and the Lord spit it out of his mouth. Have you heard that before or have you read that before? First of all, we're not 100% sure that was true in Laodicea. And number two, do you have to know that to know that if you're drinking rank, lukewarm water, it's gonna make you sick? Sometimes we speculate so much about what might have been happening in the background that we just miss what's right there in front of us. It's lukewarm. You spit out lukewarm water unless you're weird. Maybe you like lukewarm water. So, again, the historical context is important, but not at the the expense of what the text is trying to tell us. That's what matters. Not whatever we may or may not be able to figure out in the background. And finally, pay attention to the redemptive historical context, where this verse or this chapter fits within the story of Scripture, but never at the expense of the story, never at the expense of what's in front of you. It's also just about what's there, even if we're trying to figure out how it fits in the story. And finally, use good tools to help you interpret the Bible faithfully. Things like the sort of stuff we're recommending each week. Trustworthy commentaries. If you go to the equip section of the church's website, uh, you're gonna see some commentary series and Bible study resources that Jeremy and others recommend uh, to members of the church. Uh, So don't don't just go out there especially to Barnes and Noble to the religion section and pull down some random you know what you know what the religion section of Barnes and Noble is good for sharing the gospel with lost people no i'm dead serious i've shared the gospel with lots of lost people over the years in the religion section of Barnes and Noble because folks are there because they're asking questions their life is a wreck and they're pulling down a bestseller because somebody said you need some religion but there's almost nothing good that's there so Talk to trustworthy Christian leaders, whoever they are. Somebody who's a little bit further in their faith, a pastor, whoever it is, and, uh, and find some tools to help you interpret the Bible faithfully. Any questions about that? So just general principles. All right. Genre. So... When we read Shakespeare, should we interpret that the same way we would interpret a biography of Winston Churchill? Or if you like Superman comic books, do you read that the same way that you read or attempt to read an IKEA instruction manual? Do you, do you read a novel the same way you read a cookbook? The same way is true with Scripture. Those are different genres, right? There's different rules, if you will, for how to interpret different genres, and that applies to some degree in Scripture, just like it applies whenever you're reading a Batman comic versus a cookbook versus a biography of Margaret Thatcher. Different rules are in the back of our mind as we're reading those things. So, when we come to the Bible, there's a little bit of basic information about biblical genres that can help us avoid some of the most common errors when it comes to biblical interpretation. So I'm gonna give you a principle to keep in mind, okay? I am not being a heretic. Don't try to get me fired. Listen to what I'm saying, and not what I don't, don't think I'm saying something different. The Bible is always literally true, but it is not always meant to be interpreted literally. Let me say that again. It's always literally true. There's nothing false about it. But not every section of the Bible is meant to be interpreted literally. So let's talk about that. I'm gonna give you some narratives. Historical narratives. This is by far the biggest, more than half of the Bible is historical narrative. This includes most of the first five books, all of the historical books in the old testament first and second samuel first and second chronicles joshua judges ruth things like that the gospels and the acts of the apostles historical narratives are meant primarily to recount past events they're historical narratives they're telling us what happened in the past however they are not meant to be either neutral like modern objective history They're not meant to be neutral, okay? And they're not meant to be exhaustive. They're not trying to tell us about everything that was happening in the world at the time that that book was being written and it's recounting those events. That's not the purpose. There are reasons those authors wrote those books. And there are reasons that we recognize those books as divinely inspired. So here's the way to think about it. Historical narratives are theological history because they're meant not just to recount the past, but to help us think rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. So when we're reading historical narratives, we should pay attention to what the authors state or imply about their context. These are your bullet points. We should look for key verses that are intended to communicate the major theme for a book or a section. Those are often there. We should be on the lookout for repetition because this was a common way to note emphasis in ancient writings. They didn't underline or highlight or all caps because everything was in all caps in many of those. They repeated stuff over and over again. That was how you knew what was important. We should distinguish between trustworthy and untrustworthy characters in the narrative. Do you know the Bible is filled with lies? Because it's filled with liars and it recounts what liars say one time. So we've gotta figure out who's telling the truth whenever Jesus is out there in the wilderness and Satan's making certain promises. Is Satan telling the truth? We gotta figure out who's reliable and who's not to rightly understand some of that historical narrative. Any questions? We're not gonna finish this. We're gonna move some of it to the next week, so don't freak out, but any questions? Just trial and error with this. We're gonna figure out kind of what our rhythm is. But. Any questions? Were there any impact on these blind, dead, dead, and books and books? There any impact on things like the Dead Sea scrolls? Oh. Yeah, yeah. So was there any impact of uh, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls on what was in scripture and and what was not? Uh, this may surprise you but no there wasn't. And we know that because the Dead Sea Scrolls were not discovered until 1947. So there's no evidence in the early church that they were aware of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls do? Many of them match up with exactly what we have in Scripture. Now they've got some other stuff too, but uh, there's a you can go find this online. There's uh, almost an incomplete copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's, Over 95% consistent with what we have in our Hebrew Bible. And all the mistakes are like minor grammatical mistakes. Nothing that changes the meaning or anything like that. So what it actually does later is it helps confirm what was there, but there's no evidence that it helped them decide what was Scripture and what was not. That's a great question. Let's talk about prophecy. So first things first. By the way, I'm from a small railroad town where every church in town, every sermon and Bible study gets interrupted by the trains. I love Taylor's First Baptist Church. It's been so much fun to be here these last several months. It's just a reminder of back home that uh, the trains are always there in the background listening. Okay, there's a sense in which the entire Old Testament is prophetic because the entire Old Testament prepares readers to understand the person and work of Jesus. However, there are some writings that are clearly intended to be prophetic because they offer a word directly from the Lord through a prophet whom he has chosen for that task. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about prophecy. Some prophetic writings were written by the prophets themselves. Others were recounting the words of prophets and somebody else wrote it. We don't know who, but they're telling us what a prophet said. Sometimes there are also kind of one-off prophetic utterances that are found in other biblical genres. So the whole book isn't a book of prophecy, but we see a prophecy in that book or a prophecy in that book. So what are the rules? When reading prophetic writings, we should pay attention first and foremost to the original audience. What does it seem like was being communicated to them? Like, What does it look like the, intention, the intended takeaway was? As much as we can tell, sometimes we can't, but as much as we can tell, what would they have understood whenever they heard or read this for the first time? However, we should also pay attention to how later scriptures interact with earlier prophecies. So not just what did it seem to mean, but what does this later section of scripture tell us about what it means? Does that make sense? How are they both talking about it? We should expect much of the language to be figurative. This is common, by the way, not just in the prophetic biblical writings, Uh, all ancient writings that claim to be prophetic are filled with figurative language. There's a reason it sounds weird sometimes. We should pay attention to which prophecies are conditional and which are unconditional. This is really important in the major prophets especially because there's some prophecies that are, this will happen if this happens, and there are others that just say this is going to happen. And so we need to see what words are being used. Is it, are there conditions placed on the fulfillment or is this just something that Scripture says is going to happen. We should also pay attention to which prophecies are fulfilled later in Scripture and which are not fulfilled. Most of the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled during the New Testament era and are recorded for us. But is every prophecy fulfilled? Most Christians would say, no, we're still We're still waiting for certain problems. We may debate what they are, but we're still waiting for some of those things to happen. So pay attention to what we can tell has been fulfilled from scripture and where it's not clear, or maybe it's clear it's not been fulfilled yet. We should remember that some prophecies have layers of fulfillment that are progressively revealed over both redemptive history and post-biblical history. Let me camp out here for a minute. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. They began to speak in languages that they had never learned. Uh, People are getting saved. Peter stands up to preach, and he quotes from the day of the Lord prophecy, and he says, this scripture is being fulfilled before your eyes. Now he's telling the truth because he's not a liar and it's scripture. But not everything in the day of the Lord prophecy is being fulfilled right there. The prophetic stuff is happening that he talks about, but we don't yet have the final judgment, which is talked about. So there's clearly layers of fulfillment. Aspects of that are beginning to be fulfilled, but we're still waiting on certain things to be fulfilled. So we always need to be checking for that. You know, when when is it being revealed progressively throughout scripture or even something that maybe hasn't happened yet? Like an obvious example would be the last judgment or the second coming or something like that. We should recognize that all biblical prophecies find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the one new covenant people of God and the new creation. All roads lead to three things. One Lord, one people, one redeemed, created order. And there's been lots of debate throughout Christian history about how we get there, but everybody agrees at the end of the day, one Jesus, one people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and one new creation, new Jerusalem, depending upon what we're talking about. That's where all the roads are leading when it comes to prophecy. Even if we have lively debates about some of the finer points that get us there. Any questions about prophetic writings? Again, these are just some basic guidelines. With that, we're going to go ahead and end this week. So this is helpful. We're seeing what we have time to do and what we don't have time to do. So this is gonna help me prepare for next week. We're just gonna come right back with kind of part two next week, and we will begin by jumping right in with these other genres, uh, the apocalyptic writings and some of these other New Testament things, and then we'll talk about some of the stuff we would have talked about anyway. I do wanna make one last recommendation to you. If you go down to the bottom of the page, three of the books have carried over from last week, the three different books about how to interpret the Bible, Uh, but I added another one for this week, Uh, Gregory Lanier's A Christian's Pocket Guide to How We Got the Bible. That is a 130-page little book written for everyday Christians that talks about things like manuscripts, canonization, and why can we trust the Bible. And I would uh, commend that to you. It is a, A Christian's Pocket Guide to How We Got the Bible. It's on page six of the handout. It's on page seven of your handout and page six of my notes. <laughs> thank you for that. Any uh, any final questions or comments or concerns? Hey, thank you for your time. Thank you for taking a risk with this new thing called the Equip Institute. Uh, and again, we'll try to figure out how much information we have time to talk about. Maybe when we're not doing selfies, there's a little bit more time. But uh, we'll we'll get it straight here over time. I'm gonna close with a word of prayer. Oh yes, sir. When will this be on podcast? I do not know the answer to the question when this will be on podcast. It will be on podcast before we meet next week, <laughs> but it might be later. They're gonna put Pastor Josh up before they get me up. <laughs> I mean, he's gonna he's gonna want he's gonna want his moment of glory with people listening to Leviticus. And then whenever he's satisfied, he's going to say, all right, I guess you can put Finn up. So, okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. We pray that you would uh, continue to help us to learn. And we pray that the things that we are learning would not just be for the sake of head knowledge, Lord, but we pray that you would be working in our lives to conform us more and more to the character of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.